makes you kind of wonder if the Israelites felt the same way as they're in captivity, saying nothing's going to stop my God coming after me. And it makes you wonder how many of them during that captivity gave up on that dream. You know, there's a fight within us. There's a fight to say I've been away from God too long. There's no hope. Yet there is hope. And we see that all throughout the scriptures. In fact, we're, we're in Daniel 1 this morning again. In our second week of Daniel. And it starts out and it says, In the third year of the reign of Je- Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. And he delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So as we began last week, we talked about uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming in and hauling off the cream of the crop, those that, were, uh, those that showed any aptitude of governing and governance and, and so forth. And, and the idea was, I'm going to take these and I'm going to train them for three years and then I'm going to send them back to Jerusalem to, to be over my people as he would think about it. So this is, you know, this happened in 605 BC, and he conquered Judah really quickly. And Judah is uh, is in the southern area uh, we know as uh, Jerusalem, all the way to the coast and to the Dead Sea. In fact, let me go ahead and put up the the map. Um, this is kind of a broad view of what's going on, but but this is happening at the same time as Nebuchadnezzar is inheriting the throne. And I'll show you a couple of points here on the map in a second. But uh, but he was trying to, or he was inheriting the the throne from Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if you back up four years in 609 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is attacking uh, on several different fronts. The Egyptians and the Assyrians way up in the north at the same time. So if you look at the map, you see the, the, the line that says five. The Assyrian Empire would have been up there. You see Nineveh kind of right below it. And you see Egypt way down kind of uh, on the south side on the left there. And he is attacking both. His army's large enough that he's kind of overtaking the whole area. And the Egyptians and Assyrians are being attacked. And uh, he sent Nebuchadnezzar as his commander uh, to Hamath. And this is where Abraham's father took him in Genesis 12. And that would have been kind of up at the top where you see Carchemish up there. And, and that's where the big battle happens. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes over all the area. And then he heads down to the Egyptian area. So then, uh, you know, the Egyptian Assyrians were kind of like a military alliance. Think of UN where, where one would come to, to help the other. So he defeated and both, and, and everyone, you know, they're, they're, it's kind of like this big party he's having. And he just takes over from everybody. And he becomes king during this time. Uh, he's not, not, well, now he's king of Babylon, but he wasn't there yet at the time. He was still commander. And after he defeats, defeats the Egyptians in the Battle of Carchemish, he goes down to the Egyptians are limping home. And as he kind of chases them down, there's Judah. Judah's right there. And they're just ripe for the picking. So this is what he does. He's like, let me take a detour. 
Let me take care of this little kingdom as I go down and chase the Egyptians back home. And if you've studied the book of Jeremiah at all, you will find that this has been prophesied about many years early in a, earlier in amazing detail. In fact, Jeremiah 46, 13, it says, this is the message the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to attack Egypt. This is about Nebuchadnezzar attacking Egypt when Nebuchadnezzar wasn't even in charge yet. He wasn't even in the picture yet. This is even before Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. Jeremiah is saying he will become king and he will conquer Egypt. This would be like me saying, well, President Nancy Pelosi is going to attack China and win. And you kind of look at me like I'm weird, right? Okay, well, that's because I'm joking, you know. I mean, I know you didn't laugh, but I'm joking. I know, I, I got to pull it out of you, I guess, I don't know. But Jeremiah, he wasn't joking when he said this, when he prophesied this. So Egypt limps homes and abandons the territory, including Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar is still in the region. In the process of becoming crowned because his father, Nebuchadnezzar, dies. But before he goes back home to claim the throne and basically kill all his brothers and before they try to take over, which he does... He comes by Judah, and he lays siege to it. And Judah opens the doors and says, come on in, right? Okay, you're the new sheriff in town. Here, take some plunder. Why don't you take the things from the, from the temple? No, they didn't like that at all. In chapter 5, we're going to see where these articles from the temple show back up. And we're going to see the hand of God, you know, in the middle of a, a, a debauchery party, a drunken party, and the hand of God's going to write on the wall. But if you want to study further, go ahead and go for it. Um, but if you want to look at some of these events that, that are going on at the same time, look at 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 35. Take a look in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk, because this is all going on at the same time. They're all written at the same time, and it kind of gives you some of the historical details that's going on. Some of the stuff that we won't necessarily cover on a, on a Sunday basis, but it's good information. In chapter, or verse 3, it says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So you have in their style of conquering the nations, basically they would go in and take the cream of the crop. They would take the, the you know, he wants the, the nobility. He wants the Jewish leaders. And he wants to bring them back from the Jerusalem palace to Babylon on this long journey. Now they, they would, in that map, they just didn't go straight across. They had to travel up and back down. Why is that? A big desert in the middle. You didn't travel the desert route. That was a dangerous route to travel. Uh, not only did you not have water, but you had bandits and everything else, you know. Um, so you would stay out of that area. But, you know, Nebuchadnezzar wants these guys. And all these young men who used to have Babylonian names, and they used to be Babylonian enemies, are along for the ride. 
Nebuchadnezzar is trying something unique here. He's not going to kill them. Instead, he's offering them, uh, he's kind of drafting them into a service. He's offering, offering them, offering, you know, a, a special opportunity to help govern these people. Now, this is the exact opposite for uh, the Assyrians, as we learned, uh, we kind of talked about the, when we went through the book of Jonah. When they conquered somebody, what did they all do? They lined them up in a line and took a big old hook and hooked them through the, uh, the cheek and had a little bit of rope and hooked the next person through the cheek and a little bit of rope, and they would just drag them off. That's how the, the Assyrians took care of their enemies. They were chained together. These guys are treated much better. They're riding along on camels. They're not having to walk. They're enjoying the journey in a sense. He's trying to treat them well. Like they're already a part of the royalty. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to win them over by teaching them so they can govern like he would want them to govern. Now, this is not really far-fetched if you think about it. I mean, look at what happened in Iraq. You know, we're, we're Afghanistan and that whole area is in the news lately. But what happened when we went into Iraq in the early days, which is, Bab- which is the same area as Babylon? We went in there and we tried to teach them our style of government, right? Now, did it work? Well, that's up for debate. Probably not. You know what I mean? But Nebuchadnezzar's going to try it too. And guess what? It works sort of, but not really. My point is, it's not, to, you know, it's not hard to imagine one nation doing this to another nation. So here's what happened. Aspenaz, uh, if you want to pronounce it like that, sets up testing in Jerusalem. With a flattering, head-spinning opportunity to these young men, young noble, with the right bloodline and a quick, you know, you know, quick mind of learning, you could go to Babylon and you could learn, and then you get to come back. And it says here, royal family and of nobility, young men. These young men would have been aged 14 to 19 years old. Okay, they, all their education from the Jewish standpoint had already been done. By age 14, your education was done, and without any physical defect, and handsome. Now, good-looking for a Jew is different than good-looking for a Babylonian, okay? Have you ever noticed that? You go to a different country, and and their idea of what is nice and what, that's all different. Now, we have some of the pictures, uh, 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 I say pictures, not really like a camera picture, but in the form of reliefs, you know, uh, stone drawings and so forth. And you always see the the Babylonians, they got the, the curled beards, you know what I'm saying? Uh, they, they, they're got all these different things. Um, they have this flowing hair and they're really concerned about their hair. They would spend all day getting ready. And they learned a lot of this from the Egyptians, which is kind of interesting. It's kind of the opposite of today. You know, you would have the wives going, honey, you need to hurry up in there. You know, you make us late. You know, I'm not saying that the wives make us late. I'm just saying that that's a conversation that you would have. And they would use all these oils to, to make themselves shiny. And this is probably why they won against the Egyptians. The Egyptians would have been like, ooh, oil. You know, they were all into makeup and stuff, but not oil and stuff. But, I mean, so, so you had all these, you, you had the, the handsome guys. You had, you had the rock. You had Vin Diesel. You had the Conan-like guys all ripped. And they worked out. They presented themselves as well-fit. So then you would have Daniel and the boys who, who uh, you know, look like, uh, this is what they would look like after a while in Babylon. That was the goal. 
They would spend time in the weight room and with a curling iron at the same time. I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know. But it says here they were showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. So the winners of this would be taken to Babylon to live in luxury for three years and learn literature and culture and language and politics and all those type of things. So a 14-year-old young man would leave for Babylon and they would never come back. They would never see their family again. The family is thinking, okay, they'll be back. They're probably thinking they'll be back with their master's and doctor's degree in the University of Babylon, you know? But they never come back. Aspenaz is the head eunuch under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, do we all understand what a eunuch is? Do I need to go over what a eunuch is? Anyone? Raise your hand if you need. Okay, good. Since we have a couple of young men in the back, we'll leave it at that. But this would have been common practice. Because then they would pose no threat to the king in his harem, right? And they would never grow a beard, and look like the Babylonians. We also have every reason to believe these boys had to face something difficult. When they arrived, they would have had the surgeries to become eunuchs, not something they would have wanted, not something they would have volunteered for, not something they were definitely asked about. Now, how do we know this? Well, based on the history of the Babylonian kings, based on the fact that their boss was a eunuch, and thirdly, based on what Isaiah said 85 years previous. In Isaiah 39.5, Isaiah is long gone, being martyred uh, by Manasseh in 690 B.C. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, he says, then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. See, it's sitting there, written right there, and the people stopped studying the Scripture. They, they didn't even think about it. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, will, who will be born to you, will be taken away and will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So this is kind of self-explanatory. Daniel 1.4 says to serve the king's palace. He was to teach the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a Chaldean. And this is a tribe that is in power in the Babylonian empire right now. Uh, as you know, that uh, a lot of that area is made up of tribes. And uh, family, uh, depending on what tribe you belong to and depending on who's in power, you're either on top or you're on bottom. So they were on top. He would have spoken Aramaic. Uh, while uh, the traditional language of most of the Babylonians would have been Arcadian, which leans heavily on the, on the original Sumerian, uh, Sumeria language. Uh, so these, three, you know, these boys would have learned two languages and two different cultures because they couldn't speak Hebrew in the palace that was not allowed. And you were going to work with a king, so you needed to learn his language. And you're going to be working with all the other people in the palace, which most of them spoke the other language. So you would have had three different languages going on. Hebrew, and then Chaldean, if you want to call it that, uh, or Aramaic, and then uh, the Arcadian language. Now, Chaldeans believed in a lot of gods, that the Hebrews, uh, where the Hebrews believed in one god. 
And there were many stories where these gods would have been very unpredictable to try to appease them and hope for the best. One of them was the god Anu, and another was Ishtar. Ishtar was the goddess of, of love and war, and I mean, she was a real drama queen. You gotta love that, you know? The saying, all is fair in love and war, that comes from Babylon. We have it in the writings. There's another god that, that they believe in here, um, Murduk, or Mer, uh, Marduk, and in, in he's Nebuchadnezzar's favorite god. And he had said to conquer the oceans and created the world out of the dead body of another female god that he killed in battle. I mean, it's all convoluted, okay? But it was believed that all these gods created everything. It was also believed that demonic gods were in play. So I'm trying to give you an idea, a picture of what the kingdom was like, that these three guys were, uh, uh, I say three, a whole bunch of them, but, but you know, these three or four guys are in the main part of the story that they're walking into. And they, you know, the, these evil gods could come and get you at night, and the ancestors could come and get you at night. And if you didn't bury them correctly or offer enough food for them because there wasn't any food in the afterlife. So you can see the thinking. If your little backyard temple, you know, that you offered the food wasn't good enough every day, they would come from the afterworld to get you. So if you didn't bury them right or give them enough food, that was it. They could team up on you and they would haunt you. So then you would have to ward off that by wearing amulets. And the amulets is something that they would believe that would protect you. In these ambulances, you would hide around your house and so forth, or you would face them a certain way. And why do I bring this up? Because we see this in modern Christianity. It's sad. Where people wear necklaces not to show that they're a Christian or whatever, but as a good luck charm. Where people will take things. In fact, when we were in Israel... There's a rock up on, on where they believe Calvary happened. And, and this rock is believed, okay, I say they believe this. I, I mean, this is where Calvary was in Israel. Do we know this is the rock where the cross of Christ, you know, was propped up against? I, we have no clue. We just know it was up in that area, okay? But there's five different churches that are in control of, uh, of, uh, of this uh, Oh, I forgot the name of the, of the facility that this is. And, and they say that Christ was buried in a tomb right underneath that. And, and we don't really think that. We think it was another garden uh, down uh, in the valley there. But uh, it's kind of interesting. You have five different Christian groups that are in control of this building. And I don't know, I was talking with somebody about this a couple of weeks ago. But when we were there in Israel, one group was cleaning up for their Easter. And another group that their Easter, that their Easter was on a different time date didn't like that the other group was cleaning up. Now, they're supposed to be all Christians. And they took brooms and started beating each other. Okay, great representation for Christians, right? Around the world. The cops had to be called in to pull them apart, you know? But I mean, all sorts of stuff like this happens. This happens to be the stone. They say the, the cross actually came up and sat there. So people will take handkerchiefs. They'll take necklaces. They'll take all these things and go in there and they'll just rub them all over it. And then this is my good luck charm. If I give this to so-and-so, it'll heal them. So you have all this still going on. So we still have this in Christianity, which is not biblical. So if you're doing this type of stuff, I want to encourage you to evaluate that. Because you're doing the same things they were doing in Babylon. Now, one of, one of the things that these gods would not do, 
that wouldn't do for you is to tell you the future. They didn't have a God that would tell you the future. And the Chaldeans believed in omens. God would give you omens, which were, were symbolic. But most of the time, you were kind of in the dark. So the Chaldeans would teach their young ones to learn how to divinate or whatever you want to call it. Learn how to decipher omens. You know, a lot of men in Babylon would evaluate their future by looking into sheep livers or the flight of uh, the patterns of birds or, or um, the oil uh, poured in water. Astrology, including the movement of, of planets and stars, really starts right here, which uh, we'll talk about later uh, more uh, as we study this, especially when we come to Christ's birth. But all modern-day astrology points back to the Babylonians, including the 12 signs of the zodiacs, a 360-degree circle, and a 60-minute hour. So they're incredibly intelligent, and they're deeply superstitious about everything, which is kind of an interesting combination. So in the ancient world, they would say, oh, he's a Chaldean. This could mean, oh, he's a professor, or he has a PhD, or he's a diviner, or he's an astrologer, or he's a magician, or he's a magi, or he's an interpreter of dreams. So when they said something like that, you understood. So if you're a businessman who needed a, a Chaldean, he would bring in a sheep, and he would slaughter it right there, and he would take out its liver, and he would tell you, oh, I think you need to sell stocks. Or I think you need to buy stocks. Okay, I'm trying to bring it in today's day and age. But, you know, the kind of the same principle. This is, what it, this is what this liver tells me to do. And we kind of go, what? Yet how many people do we have opening up the, the newspaper? Well, I guess we don't look at newspapers anymore. You know, on our, our devices and look at our, our Zodiac sign for the day. We're doing the same thing. The reason why we're talking about this again is we have four Hebrew boys who will be trained in all of these arts. They would learn the language, the literature, and the culture of the Chaldeans. The magic oracle uh, who interpreted the dreams. And we know that Daniel ended up being an expert at this. Why do we know that? Because God gave him the power to actually understand dreams. Well, all these other guys, uh, not so much. Daniel would have been these guys. <laughs> it's interesting. One of the things I've read is they, if you were having trouble, they'd bring you in and they'd drug you up. And as you kind of were in that semi-conscious state, they would watch over you. They'd bring in a sheep. They would cut up the sheep. And then they would wake you up and tell you, or you would wake up and you would tell them the dreams and then they would interpret it for you kind of weird way they were doing it but these are the what the four boys would have become experts in it's really weird having to become an expert in something that you do not believe in and this is what they were facing this is amazing taking these hebrew boys who already had had their bar mitzvah who had already uh, they were they were men now they knew the truth and you're putting them into hogwarts for three years for lack of a better term here Verse 5, it goes on, it says, 
The king assigned them daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they would be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. You know, this would, you know, in one sense, it'd be prestigious for the parents, at least in the eyes of the Babylonians, uh, their leaders. Here, the Egyptians, they would have treated you like slaves. The Babylonians at least put your, your kids, are drafting them in, and they're educating them. And, and the parents would have probably had torn feelings on this. They would have taken a lot of these young men, and these four probably were, were the only four that made it to this level in a sense. The four learned it all. And what's interesting is they still came out on the other side as men of God. And that's what we're going to learn. They knew what they believed in. And they stood firm in that. Where I would, have, <laughs> would almost extrapolate that the others just kind of went along for the ride. You know what I'm saying? Here's what, here's what Babylon is saying. Leave your old dusty Bible behind. You don't need it. Leave what your parents taught you behind. They're old fogies. You don't need to know it. You don't need them. Leave your temple behind. We have plenty of temples in Babylon. We're going to give you a new king. We're going to give you a new government. We're going to, you know, a new philosophy, a new religion, a new way of thinking that is much more modern than your parents. Your parents won't even understand. You don't need them anyway. We have everything you need from bed to food. We have everything. Join us in Babylon, and, and, and on your day off, you can take field trips with other students to the ruins of the old tower of Babylon outside. It's called, the, uh, you know, it's called Babel or something. We'll get to tell you our side of the story. You only learn the Jewish side of things. Come to Babylon, and, and we will show you the, the true place. And next to it, you can see the 65-story ziggurat that, that Nebuchadnezzar built to honor the Tower of Babel. You're just going to love it. They would slowly start to change their mind. Verse 6, it says, Among them uh, were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And Azariah, Abednego. And let's, let's take a look at their names. They have really cool Hebrew names to begin with. The Babylonian names are pretty much the opposite. But when I grew up in Sunday school, what names did I learn? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Right? That's what we know them by. I think we've got it backwards. We need to be teaching them the Hebrew names. Those are the cool names. So El means God, and Dan means judge. So Daniel, Daniel means God is my judge. Yah means Yahweh, and Hananiah means gracious. So, or Hannah, uh, part of it means, so you, you put it all together, it means Yahweh has been gracious. El means God, and Misha is a question of who compares. So who compares to God? Who compares to my God? Ah is Yahweh, it's another word for Yahweh, and Azar means help. So Azariah means Yahweh is my help. 
These are the names that we should be teaching our kids in children's ministry because they're awesome Hebrews names. These boys had been born during a time when Josiah was king. And Josiah, the little starting at about eight years old, nine years old, turned the kingdom back to God. He found the scriptures, dusted them off, and said, what are these? And he started learning them. And the nation of, of Judah was in a revival time. So all the names were based on godly names. And Babylon struggled pr to pronounce these names, just like Americans you know, have trouble pronouncing Middle Eastern names, Filipino names as we go to the Philippines. Any of these different countries we may go to, uh, our tongues don't work the same way, you know? And we're like, how do you say that again? So the Ab Babylonians were doing what we do. You give them an American name, okay? In the case, it's a Babylonian name. Even if they didn't like that name, they would change it because all the references to the Hebrew God. You know, it's kind of interesting. When Lisa and I went to Africa, we met a lot of Davids and a lot of Moseses and Daniels because these men had become Christian and they'd changed their name. It's kind of a fun tradition. And then there was this one guy who kept his name. And he had a personality to go along with it. His name was Geronimo. I know, we think Geronimo, we think Indian, right? He was not Indian. He was African. And he had the personality to go with that. For, but for the Babylonians and the Hebrew God was, was a weak God, was a stupid God. So why keep those names? So Daniel means God is my judge, gets Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect him. Our God, Bell, protect him. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, which means inspired by the God, Aku. Mishael becomes Meshach, meaning belonging to the God of Aku. Azariah becomes Abednego, which means servant of Nabu. So now the new names reflect the new expectations to leave the old gods behind. Because this is your new life. So you have the same pressure that all young people are under when they leave their homes. When that, when I, what I mean by that is when they leave the, you know, living in their homes, so they go live somewhere else, even for a short period of time. Now, this doesn't mean we lock up our kids and, uh, and never let them out of the house. No, it means we teach them. We teach them well. We need them to be prepared because they go to college, they're going to be told what they believe is wrong. Here's what you really should believe. We see the same thing happens in the school, in the universities. In fact, I mean, it's, it's sad, and, and I, I don't want to get political at all, but there was a video this last week of, of a, a, a young man, a teacher, who said, I have 160 days, or was it 80 days, I forgot what he said, to indoctrinate these children. And that's what his goal was. Now, there are wonderful teachers out there. Don't get me wrong, okay? In fact, we love our teachers at our school. But there's some that have agendas, not all. But you get up into university, they don't think like the church does. So we have to teach our children so when they get there, they're not surprised. We must educate them. So our beliefs become their beliefs when they leave the house. It says in verse 5, the king assigned them daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. And in verse 8, but Daniel resolved 
not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned you food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. So he's telling Daniel, man, I really like you. I like your friends. But, it, but the king personally picked your food out, and he told me what to feed you guys. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to get ahead in this palace, uh, but I don't want to lose my head either in this palace. He likes Daniel, but he's being very diplomatic about it. Now, when you read verse 11, what do you see? Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hannah, Mishael, and Azariah. You see the Hebrew names. Didn't they get other names already? They're using their Hebrew names. What this tells me is that there's, there's this kind of passive aggression, uh, passive aggressive rebellion going on here. I, I'm, I'm going in <laughs> into this. Yes, maybe in the palace I'll be called Belteshazzar, but I'm, when I'm around my friends, I'm still going to go by my real name. Now, why are they doing this? They're holding on to their God. They're holding on to their family traditions. And they'll never see those parents again. But their mom and dads have done amazing jobs of raising them. And God has done amazing uh, things with them. And will do amazing things with them. Verse 12, it goes on and says, Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Now, this does not sound like any teenager that I know. I'm just saying. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Daniel's being, being very smart here. He's giving his boss an out. He's not going in and laying down the law. He's giving them out. He's being very diplomatic here. And he's going, hey, you're probably right, but can we do a test here? I mean, we're just teenagers, and we're just craving our vegetables and water. That's all we really want to drink here. You're in charge, but give us 10 days. Verse 14, so he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine and they, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now you're thinking vegetables and we'll talk about that a little later but what I, I want to go back to a different verse here it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself another translation says he purposed in his heart and that's really what's going on here he purposed he's putting down his foot for a reason he's saying this is what I believe and what you're saying is not what I believe and he waited for the right moment he's not causing a scene it's like he's saying you can take me from everything that's familiar you can take me from my mom and dad. You can take me from my temple. You can take me from my scrolls. You can, you can take me from my training. You can make all these crazy classes that I got to look at sheep's liver and stars and self-induced comas, and I will graduate the head of my class, 
You can take away my physical manhood and my ability to be a parent. You can give me a Babylonian name, but you cannot purposely take away my God and what he has commanded me to do. And for a Jew, that means to stay kosher. And this is where he's drawing the line. But he draws the line in such a diplomatic way that it works. Daniel is, is telling us here, that if we do or say certain things, we're to do it diplomatically. The people walk away going, okay. You give them a chance to save face in a sense. What he is saying is, as nutritious as your meal is, it's not cooked properly according to what I've learned. I mean, you've cooked it in milk and cream, and that's not, we don't do that. The animal wasn't bled correctly. And you serve it with cheese. We don't mix those things. And it causes Jews problems. In fact, when Lisa and I were in Israel, uh, we, we had a meal. We went through the, uh, the Holocaust uh, Museum. And it was just amazing and sad at the same time. So we went through that. And at the very end, we had a meal. And they had a big line down the middle of the cafeteria. You could eat your meat and all that on this side, but you couldn't take that tray or any of the things on that over that line to that side to go get ice cream or milk or anything else. Those were completely separated areas and cleaned it differently and all these different kosher rules. And that's what Daniel's uh, doing this. So, so Daniel's saying, you can't mess up water and vegetables. Now, the word vegetables comes from the root word zara, Okay. And zara is a sown seed or a scattered seed. So when you think of vegetables, we think of green beans and, and tomatoes, etc. I know tomatoes technically a fruit, but we think of it, okay, you know what I'm saying. But these guys, this would include anything that was planted. So rice, wheat, all the fruits, bread made without milk, all of that would have been included here. And at the end of the text, it says their faces looked healthier. But the word actually means fatter. So at the end of the 10 days of water and vegetables and, and fruit and the bread, why are they fat? It's not really logical. I think this is God making them fatter. God is working a miracle already. He's going to do lots of miracles with their bodies. He's going to do lots of miracles within this story. So you can tell your families, why am I so fat? Well, this is just God doing a miracle. So I mean, that was a side thing. Not really biblical at all, but I'm just saying a side thing. Um, but American culture, you know, it's bad to be fat. In many other cultures, it means you're rich or wealthy. When I go to the Philippines, they look at me a little different. They think I'm really wealthy, and I'm just like, no, I, I'm trying to stop, okay? You know? But uh, when we were in Angola, Africa, I had a guy lean over to me and say, you're looking really fat today. And he meant it as a compliment, Okay? It's a whole different idea. But for Daniel, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with keeping kosher and asking permission. He is not rebelling. He is like, well, I mean, he's not rebelling, but he is at the same time. I also believe he's making a statement about the king's table here. And it's still true today. In Middle Eastern culture, if you sat down at someone's table, you're accepting them. You're saying, you are my friend. And if you push back and you don't eat at that table, you're saying, I'm not so sure about you. Again, while we were in Angola, Africa, we brought a chef along with us. 
because we didn't want to get sick. We wanted to spend our time actually serving because if you don't do the vegetables right, you can get sick because you're not used to what, uh, you know, all the, all the stuff from their country. Um, and twice we ate out at another family's home, but these families were from Angola, but they'd spent time in America. So they knew where we, what dietary, you know, wash the vegetables a certain way and all this kind of stuff. But there was one meal that the church, the very last day, decided to cook for us. And they cooked it on the side between the church building and the homes. Not four feet from this is a pipe that comes out of the home where they had flushing toilets inside, but everything came out of the pipe right onto the ground. So we're thinking, I really don't want to eat this. And our leader come over and goes, you're going to eat every bite. You're going to eat everything. We had one guy that, uh, oh, he was so nice. He came over to the ladies and just goes, put it on my plate. And he just ate it for them, you know, because, and luckily no one got sick. I mean, it was great, but I mean, this was, you know, cooking right on, in the dirt right there and stuff, you know, but, uh, but it wasn't about the food. It was about the host. If we didn't eat it, we were being rude to them. You know what I'm saying? You're not my friend. Your church that I came to, to help and you guys taught us so much, you're not my friend because I'm not going to eat this meal. So Daniel's trying to, you know, he, he's, he's trying to hold off a little bit, but at the same time, he's saying, I'm not their host. It's almost like he's sitting around and going, hey, Azariah, you still Jewish? Yeah, I am. Are you going to make it too? Yeah, I'm going to make it. In other words, they're, they're holding out. They're being passive aggressive in that end. And if you look across the room, they would find former Jewish friends who were chowing down on the pork rinds, who were chowing down on all that kind of stuff. And, and, and they're like, hey, guys, how's that pork over there? Is it tasty? Is it good for you? Kind of poking them, going, remember, you used to be Jewish. I used to call you Moises. That's how they would say Moses over there, okay? And others, you know, and the others are like, hey, man, just lighten up. We all have to do this. We're all in the same boat here. So you can see the compromise that can happen here. And this is where something else that struck me in the word vegetables. It was the root word zaras, or uh, zawas, which means scattered seed. I think he's reminding the four boys that they're scattered seeds. Zechariah said it like this in Zechariah 10.9, I will scatter them like seeds among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall return. It's like at every meal they ate, they were reminding themselves, who are we and where, we where do we come from? Psalms 126 says, when the Lord brought, the, brought back the captives of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and filled, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in fear will reap with songs of joy. Or those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So the question is, for you, what is Babylon? 
for you, who is your God? And who are you? What compromises have gotten between you and who you are not? Are you stronger now in your faith than what you once were? Or are you weaker in your faith than what you once were? Have you been eating at Nebuchadnezzar's uh, table, just gorging yourself on everything the world has to offer? Are you saying, whoa, 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 wait a second, that show or that movie or those friends, or wait, those aren't kosher. And what I mean by kosher is not the Jewish way of eating, but God's way of doing things. Should I really be involved in that? You know what I find interesting? Different ones, different people will push away from different things at different tables. And then the New Testament, we call that the law of grace. But if you're not pushing away from anything that the world is offering, you're just taking it all in, then you should be questioning your faith. You should be concerned. We have to push against this world. If there's nothing in your lifestyle that sets you apart from the people down the street, then something is seriously wrong. You need to look deep within yourself and ask, what do I believe, and find God again, because he's there waiting for you. He wants to reconnect, and he wants, you to show, or he wants to show you his ways. We cannot look like everybody else in this world, because then what attraction do they have? God set aside Israel. The whole point of setting aside Israel was not because they were a great and wonderful people. In fact, sometimes they're just like everybody else. They can be downright nasty. I have Jewish friends, I know. Some of them are great and wonderful, and some of them are downright nasty. Same thing with, with anybody else. God set the Jewish people aside, not because they're the greatest, but so he could see, if they follow me, I will bless them, and it will be a draw for the world. We are set aside. We are adopted into the Jewish nation. We should be a draw to this world. The goodness that people say, I want a piece of that. There's something there that I want to know about. And that is why we have to separate ourselves from this world and parts of this world. Because if we look like everybody else, what are we doing? And why are we doing it? Something to consider this week. Let's pray as they come up and finish one last song. Lord, I pray that we can stand up against this world in, in your ways, that by your Holy Spirit, through your leading, the desire that's put within us, that we get to a point where you are our rock. You are our standard in this life. And I pray that you help us with that, Lord. Pray for those that need to turn back to you. That they would find welcome and and opening arms. Welcome and opening arms from you, but also the church. That they would feel loved. They would feel supported. Bring back the sheep that are lost, Lord. Use us to reach out and bring them back. In your loving name, Jesus. Amen.